Hello, and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Closing policies and opening new policies and even in some cases we have seen that insurers have quite affordable policies still but they don't show them on their website. That makes things even much harder to understand. Recent analysis shows major health insurers are using sneaky loopholes to boost costs of top hospital cover beyond the approved rates. And later today... We think there need to be banking services in place in remote communities. We think it's very important that people are able to speak to someone face-to-face. An RMIT study showing communities in regional and remote areas are still relying on face-to-face banking services. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, a study has found self-denial remains one of the main barriers for young people struggling with disordered eating. The study from Flinders University says only one in four people under the age of 25 seek help for an eating disorder with the majority either in denial or believing their problems aren't bad enough to require treatment. The study targeted low socioeconomic areas where barriers to treatment included poor nutrition, food security issues and a lack of support network. Flinders University professor Tracy Wade has told National Radio News reporter Remy Norton diet fads and other weight loss trends actually triggered the denial of disordered eating habits. But we know that even if people don't meet a diagnosis and have problems with their eating, they have the same level of impairment. So rather than just measuring yes or no, do you have it or don't you, we actually measure the severity of the symptoms and that ranges across not eating properly, uh, purging, being worried about body image, spending time avoiding social contact because of concerns about eating or appearance. We look at the severity of the disordered eating rather than just the presence or absence of an eating disorder. Then from there, what was the correlation between high eating disorder symptoms and the denial of the illness? The denial of disordered eating is quite common and it's a little bit different from other mental health problems like depression and anxiety where people perhaps are more willing to recognise the symptoms. Um, The problem with eating disorders is that, uh, of course, losing weight and being on a diet are usually socially very acceptable. So it is a real challenge to, to overcome that social acceptability. It um, is a significant association that, um, and in fact, it's the strongest one out of all the, the ones that we looked at, including stigma. People talk a lot about the stigma of putting your hand up to say you've got an eating disorder. But in our research, it came up with denial being the strongest predictor of people not wanting to get treatment for their eating. And denial is really just about not recognising the seriousness of the problem. Why did your study then target low socioeconomic areas? Well, a lot of uh, studies, a lot of intervention studies, are 
done with university students, done with people from higher socioeconomic status. And so the study was really positive in that regard because we showed that these therapies work just as well with groups that are more financially challenged and more socially challenged. So you need to consider other issues and give other types of support, for example, trying to ensure regular access to food through food banks and things like that. Why are other forms of eating disorders not included in a treatment programs? Since COVID, eating disorders have increased by 15% around the world. So there's a huge demand on clinics and on wait lists. So wait lists have blown out and um, a lot of treatment programs, unfortunately, in order to try to manage the demand, sometimes have to make difficult decisions about who they can help and who they can't. You touched on COVID there. Why did the pandemic exacerbate the prevalence of eating disorders? Yeah, the the observation that eating disorders increased over COVID and it seemed to be particularly an increase in adolescents and particularly with anorexia nervosa. And so we still don't have a definitive answer to that. There are a few uh, ideas about why that happened. I think there was a lot of concern during COVID, even if you weren't in a lot of lockdowns, about having less exercise and about um, the possibility of putting on weight. So the other issue that seemed to be important was an increased use of social media amongst young people. Again, particularly focused on, you know, not gaining weight during COVID, exercising at home, talking about food. What will placing eating disorders into a primary healthcare category do that current strategies haven't been able to? The primary health tend to require less assessment or less barriers for people. People can often walk off the street and inquire about a service. If you're going to a tertiary healthcare service, you need a GP referral and you might um, you know, be quite a wait list, so it can take a time even to be assessed. The idea of primary health is just making it much easier for people to even inquire about help, even to say, look, I don't know if I need help, can I talk to someone? Psychologically, when people are being referred to a specialist service, they think they're not, again, the the denial might kick in and they think, well, I'm not that bad. There's other people that need this more than I do. We We need both. We're not saying one or the other, but traditionally eating disorders has been treated just out of tertiary healthcare and we need to make sure that there are good services in the primary healthcare sector as well. That was Professor Tracy Wade from Flinders University there speaking with National Radio News' Remy Norton. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Half of Australians have private health insurance, with many paying steep premiums for top hospital cover. But according to a consumer advocacy group, major health insurers are using sneaky loopholes to boost costs of top hospital cover beyond the approved rates. Choice analysis shows top hospital policies have risen 30% over three years, significantly higher than the average 8.6% rise reported by the government. 
What does the report reveal about these tactics? And how can Australians ensure they don't fall victim to sneaky price increases? The Wire's Emma Watsky spoke with Choice Health Insurance Specialist Utah Mim to find out. Health insurance premiums have gone up by 8.6% over the last three years. Gold level health insurance policies of top cover has gone up by over 30%. What does your report say is is the reason for this? On the one hand, gold policies have gone up more than other levels like bonds or silver. But the main tactic that health insurers have actually used is closing their affordable policies and then opening a new policy at a much higher price. So new customers can only take the new policy, which is costing them a lot more. And this just applies to new customers, not existing customers? Existing customers have also experienced price rises, but not on the same level. So their policies are closed for new members. Although this is sneaky, this is all legal to do within the year? It's perfectly legal. It's sneaky and it's non-transparent and it doesn't help consumers to make good choices for health health cover. Just to reiterate, how much more are some of these people paying for top cover because of these tactics? In 2021, a family in New South Wales paid on average $5,380 for a gold hospital policy. So if that same family wanted to take out gold now, they would pay on average $7,090 per year. But this is just the average amount. That family could actually save more than $1,000, maybe even $2,000 if they shopped around and got the cheapest gold insurance policy. How often have these tax being identified over previous years, do you think that it's becoming worse? So we have identified at least one case per insurer for the five big ones in the last three years. And in this case, the premiums have gone up by 15 to 20%. When it comes to health, the consumer really needs to trust their cover. What impact could these have on consumer trust and public perception, do you think? So gold health insurance is needed by people who want to plan a family, by people who have a mental health condition, which might mean they need psychiatric care in hospital, by people who have knee and hip surgeries or have trouble walking and would stay for more than a year on a public hospital waiting list, cataract operations and weight loss surgery and fertility. So those groups are quite vulnerable consumer groups who really need their health cover because they have really health conditions or chronic conditions, which means they need to go to hospital. And for them, it might become completely unaffordable to take out that hospital insurance. I'm aware that more than half Australians have private health insurance. Members of the public have said that they find insurance hard to navigate. Could it be even harder to navigate loopholes with this top hospital cover? And I guess knowing what you're paying for. Absolutely. Closing policies and opening new policies and even in some cases we have seen that insurers have quite affordable policies still, but they don't show them on their website. That makes things even much harder to understand. Health insurance isn't an easy field to navigate and then if they're using sneaky tactics and something that's less transparent than it should be, then that makes it even harder. Are there things that consumers can do to avoid falling victim to these loopholes and, and maximise what they're paying for in top-level hospital cover? Well, the first thing you need to check is, are you actually on the right cover? So if you are currently on a gold hospital policy, do you actually need all those covers that gold gives you? Or could you downgrade to a silver hospital policy or even a bronze? Would that give you the cover you need? 
then you need to check, do you actually have the cheapest policy of that level of cover that you need? So Choice, for example, has a comparison tool which has 40 insurers, which are basically all insurers on there. And we show all the policies, not only the policies that health insurers want to show you because we don't get commissions, we're completely independent. I'm aware that the Department of Health and Aged Care report shows an average increase of 8.6% across all levels of cover, bronze, silver and gold. But your report identifies an increase of up to 31.5% for top hospital cover over the past three years. If you could explain just a little more on why there's such a drastic discrepancy between those two figures. Yeah, both of those are average figures. So the Department of Health and Aging only gives us the average for the whole industry and the average per fund. However, funds have sort of designed the health increases for different policies and different consumer groups differently. Depending on the risk, they increase prices for gold policies more than, for example, prices for bonds policies if they identify that people on bonds policies don't actually use their health cover. So the average is a bad indication of what you're actually going to pay. To find out what you're actually going to pay more, you have to wait for the letter of your health insurer. Health insurance specialist Utah Mim there, speaking with The Wire's Emma Watsky. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Victoria on West Gippsland Community Radio, to our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio, and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. New data from the National Action Plan for Paediatric Palliative Care has highlighted many areas where current approaches are falling short. The findings of the report will inform future decisions and changes to the delivery of paediatric palliative care in Australia. To learn more, The Wire's Joelle Jessa-Darson spoke with Dr Anthony Herbert, Director of Paediatric Palliative Care at Queensland Children's Hospital and advisor to the National Action Plan Project. In the project, for example, there's been resources developed for families tools that can sort of assist uh, families in accessing information or planning the care for their child. And that includes patients who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander as well. Uh, There's been resources developed for health professionals. And also we've been able to look at the data side of things and, and look at what data we're collecting and how can we do that nationally? How can we work out the quality of the care that we're providing and what sort of outcomes can we sort of deliver with the, with the care? What are some of the ways paediatric palliative care differs from general or older palliative care? Well, I guess key differences would include it's a reversal of the natural order for, for children to die for their parents. And so there's immense profound suffering in that. And we want to sort of um, acknowledge that, but also try and respond to that and provide care and compassion to that difficult situation. The developmental aspect of what we do is really important and how we communicate with patients. Uh, what do they understand, and then um, letting them ask questions and doing that in a, in a way that's appropriate for their age. So that's really important. And um, working with the parents who are often the decision makers for their children. So not only are the parents caring for their children and providing 24-hour care, but they're also the ones that are working with us 
to make decisions about what treatments we may or may not provide in the best interest of the child. What were the main findings from the data study? This is the first time we were able to pull together all of our data and we looked at the children who died in 2021 who were linked to the paediatric palliative care services around Australia. There was around 654 children. Only 46% of all children who died in 2021 with a life-limiting condition received specialist paediatric palliative care. On a positive note, seven in eight children died in the family's end-of-life goal. So, for example, parents would like their child to die at home, and so many children were able to many children were able to receive care at home with the support of their parents and a network of health professionals. Interestingly, children from regional and remote areas tended not to live as long and died at a younger age than children from the major cities. Children, on average, lived 150 kilometres away from um, the sort of the tertiary children's hospitals. So, it's really important that we are able to provide care to families living in regional, rural, remote locations. Uh, We do a lot of that by telehealth. Interestingly, one in three children were engaged with the service for less than one month. So for some patients we meet, their condition may be sort of progressing so quickly that we may not know them for for too long. How will this data help to influence change in paediatric palliative care in Australia and what will the next steps hopefully be? allowed a national collaboration of our data so we can look at things that we are doing well I guess particularly in terms of um, trying to support patients to be cared for in in their their choice of location whether that's the home or hospice or um, the hospital but we can also sort of identify where there might be needs or, or gaps in the service provision For example, it does suggest that maybe more children who have got life-limiting conditions, it's possible that maybe more children could be referred to paediatric palliative care services. So perhaps there's an aspect of education to other health professionals as well as to the community. And I guess we can also start thinking now we've got this national collaboration, what things can we measure to show the quality of care that we're providing and that we can make a difference so we can sort of look at trying to measure outcomes. That was Dr Anthony Herbert speaking with The Wire's Joelle Jessadarson. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. study from RMIT shows communities in regional and remote areas are still relying on face-to-face banking services. More banks in regional and remote areas are shutting down and moving to online services. For communities without access to affordable and reliable internet, the impacts are significant. First Nations communities are at a greater disadvantage, where 43% of Indigenous communities and homelands across Australia have no mobile service. The Wires' Eduardo Jordan spoke to Julian Thomas, RMIT media and communication professor, to get a better insight on the issue. What we've done is pull together the research that we've been doing all the data that we've been gathering over a number of years now about digital services and the way in which people use the internet across Australia. So not just in rural and regional places, but also in the, in the cities. So we now have an evidence base, which we have brought together 
which can inform the sorts of decisions we need to make about where services can be located and about the sort of people who are likely to miss out if we make changes like getting rid of face-to-face services and replace them with digital. So what we did in our report is pull all of that together in order to show that when we close bank branches in rural and regional locations, this will have impacts on those Australians who are not already well-connected people who may not have an internet connection or an inadequate one, people who may face affordability challenges, people who may not have the confidence and capabilities to move all their banking online. What are some of the main issues regional communities face when, for example, closing a bank or an essential services just available online? So there are, there are several issues and really what we're seeing is a multidimensional problem. So if we're saying to people, you need to access this service online now, many of us will be able to manage that reasonably well, but there will be a significant number of people who face one or more significant issues. So the first problem that people will have is whether or not they have a quality, reliable internet connection, which they can use at home or elsewhere. And of course, in many parts of regional and remote Australia, that's not the case. There's also a problem with affordability because what you're really saying is this essential service which you require to live, which is banking, you have to do it online. That means you need to have a reliable, high-quality internet connection. And for many people, there are real affordability challenges in Australia right now. And the last thing is it's critically important that people have the confidence and capability, the skills to use online banking services. And that includes knowing as far as we can when we're seeing scams, when we're seeing uh, problems, uh, when we're seeing abuses. First Nations communities are way behind in this digital gap. Why are uh, First Nations people more digitally excluded? Again, it's a series of things, I think, which contribute to the situation in many First Nations remote communities. I've already talked about some of them, but they play out in a particular way. So many First Nations remote communities are in that category of being very remote. And it's often the case that the communications infrastructure there is not up to the job, that people have patchy or non-existent broadband. The other thing is that affordability issue, which I mentioned, that really hits hard when you have a lot of people in the community who are on low incomes. And of course, we know that's the case uh, with a lot of uh, First Nations communities. And thirdly, the skills questions. Julian, and what are some of the recommendations the report shows to reduce this digital gap and keep banking available to remote communities? Well, we think there need to be banking services in place in remote communities. We think it's very important that people are able to speak to someone face-to-face. But in the meantime, we also think that there's far more that needs to be done in those communities and elsewhere, for that matter, in regional and remote Australia to improve digital inclusion and to make sure that people can take advantage of these new digital services. Again, there's a mix of things that need to be done there, but there really does need to be attention paid to the affordability question. So we need to bring the price of internet access down within easier reach of people 
uh, who are on low incomes. That, we think, is very important and something which is missing at the moment. The other thing is tailored skills and training programs for particular groups of people. For example, in First Nations communities, clearly you need skills and training packages which are tailored to, to those communities. And we've also got to do something about making sure that there's better access to the internet so that if people have all the rest of it, they, they can still get a reliable connection wherever they are. That was RMIT Professor Julian Thomas speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Yuggera countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders, past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. As always, thank you so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.